chapter 1. And uh, we will start there, but we'll spend most of our time jumping around to passages primarily in the Old Testament. So feel free to follow along if you can or just listen. Um, we're taking a break from our exposition of the book of Colossians. Uh, I don't necessarily feel obligated to um, preach uh, holiday messages or special occasions, but I do believe they're appropriate. And uh, I don't necessarily have a series uh, for Christmas, but I do, I do have a Christmas message this morning, and uh, next week I'll have also have another Christmas message. Um, but we'll be jumping around to look at um, the coming of our Messiah. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season, a reminder of Christ's birth. As we look at his birth and the prophecies of his birth and his person, please guide us, help us to listen, help us to be attentive, help us to glean from your word and the truths that are in it, the principles it proclaims. Help us to apply them to our lives. Encourage us in our faith. Strengthen us that we would be more pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're one week out from Christmas, and we've officially been in the Christmas season since the day after Thanksgiving. I think that's when it officially starts. However, it seems as if uh, the Christmas sales and advertising have been starting earlier and earlier over the past several years. And uh, in looking at our culture, even as our culture gets more and more wicked and depraved, it seems as if they will never get rid of Christmas. It seems almost a, a paradox. But they will, however, continue to push the true meaning of Christmas into the background as it increasingly becomes overshadowed by materialism and all the cultural trappings of the seasons, like lights, Santa, elves, reindeer, and all the secular Christless Christmas songs, sayings, movies, and events. And yet, in the midst of all of the unbelieving world's celebration of Christmas, there will be Christmas hymns playing in the background as we go to malls and shopping centers and um, have Christmas parties, and wherever we go, we will hear these Christmas hymns playing in the background and even sung with glee by unbelievers. Um, and all these Christmas songs, and most of them, except the, probably except many of the new ones, but most of them, uh, the traditional ones, they clearly proclaim the birth, nature, and works of Jesus Christ. And they either allude to or explicitly proclaim elements of the gospel in several passages in the Bible, which is quite honestly the thing I love most about the Christmas season. It's the songs. And not just that I sincerely enjoy nearly all of the old Christmas songs, but that they are being sung in so many secular places. It's kind of like going to um, hearing Amazing Grace at funerals and at um, sports arenas, and a song which clearly lays out the gospel. And, um, but sad also shows the spiritual blindness of many who sing it. Um, but the song is sung nonetheless, just like many of our um, Christmas songs are being sung and played in secular places. And they can be used as opportunities to share the gospel and as we get closer to Christmas, well, one such song came to my mind, which was written by Charles Wesley, and it not only expresses an anticipation for Christmas to come, but more explicitly and more importantly, it expresses an anticipation for Christ to come and everything that encompasses His coming. And both of them, first His second, His first and His second coming, come. Thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. 
dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. In this first stanza, we can clearly, clearly see these themes of anticipation, deliverance, freedom, rest, hope, and redemption, which are not only present in most of our Advent hymns, but are all throughout the Christmas story. They're all throughout the gospel. And what we think when we consider the incarnation, the biblical record of the birth of Jesus and everything leading up to it, and the circumstances surrounding it in the Bible. And when I think of Christmas and the birth of Christ, there's one verse which comes to my mind, which I believe encompasses everything that has to do with the incarnation, and that's Matthew 121. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That name Jesus, and even in Jesus' day, was pretty popular. Um, and, but it meant something. Quite literally, it means God saves. In Hebrew, Yeshua, God saves, which is, if we translate that into English, it's Joshua. Joshua and Jesus are the same names. But... In Greek, Jesus is translated into Jesus. But it still carries so much weight with it, so many implications with it, that God saves. And He came to save. And in considering the meaning of Christmas and the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I, I want us to take a look at some of the themes concerning his birth, and particularly those themes which are expressed in many of our Christmas carols and Advent hymns. So this morning we will look at five themes concerning the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Five themes that run throughout the Bible which all express the same emotions and sentiment of Wesley's hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. First and foremost, the promise of a Savior. The promise of a Savior that as God told uh, Joseph through the angel that you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That This promise goes all the way back to the beginning, to right after the fall. There was this promise of a Savior. And what theologians and pastors call the Proto unit Angelion, or the first gospel. Genesis 3.15 says, I will, speaking as God speaks to Satan, to the serpent, right after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Specifically, pointing to a redeemer, a savior, a king, a conqueror, someone who will defeat our adversary, our enemy, the devil. But he goes on and he talks about the effects of the curse. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his, wife, called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That's the second part of this first gospel. That though initially uh, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, tried to cover their shame, cover their guilt, cover their sin with fig leaves, God shows that their coverings were inadequate. They could not cover themselves. They could not 
um, in a sense, save themselves. They could not do away with their shame on their own. That God had to cover them. And not only did God have to cover them, but a sacrifice had to be made. Blood had to be spilled. Someone had to die. So we see this promise of a Savior expressed first by God, but then later on we see it expressed by man. It doesn't take much further to go um, through Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 5, and we, we start to see right after Adam and Eve fell, we see the effects of sin um, filter down offspring and, and um, those generations right after them. And then at the end of Genesis, if we get this other um, glimmer of hope, of the promise of a Savior. In Genesis 5 and verse 28, it says this, talking about Lamech. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. And get this, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And though Noah didn't exactly do that, there was still a belief and a hope and a longing that someone would come along that would do that. That there would be a Redeemer. And there would be a child that would bring relief from the curse. And so from the beginning, there was this promise of a Savior, this promise expressed by God, expressed by man initially, and then later on throughout the whole Old Testament, it would continually be expressed by the patriarchs and the prophets. But then this this promise was not only expressed, it was believed. This promise of a Savior was believed. It was believed by patriarchs and the prophets of God going down through the ages. Uh, the first book of the Bible we, we see is Genesis, and, and uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy was written by Moses um, roughly around the same time, uh, time on the mountain um, perhaps, and, and then later on throughout the wilderness wanderings. Uh, it's seen as the, the, the first portion to be written, but chronologically, the first book of the Bible is Job. Job lived around the time of Abraham. Um, we don't know exactly, but it was around that time. And even Job, because this, this promise of a Savior, it, it went from Adam and Eve and was carried down. There was always this um, oral um, passing on of um, prophecy throughout the ages of a knowledge of God, of God speaking to man. And, and Job in chapter 19 and verse 25 says this, in the midst of his suffering, as his friends are counseling him and trying to figure out why he's suffering, and he's trying to figure out why he's suffering, he almost gets to an, the end of himself, and he says this, he says in Job 19.25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. He knew that there was a Redeemer. He knew that this Redeemer lived. He knew that this Redeemer was a man. That this Redeemer would come. That he would see this Redeemer. He believed. He believed in the promise of a Savior. Other patriarchs, Abraham as well, he believed. He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And though that belief and that verse points to the covenant, but the covenant pointed to a Savior. And even Jesus, in John chapter 8, at the end of John chapter 8, he talks about Abraham. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham believed in a Redeemer. He believed in a Savior. He looked forward to a Savior. 
He trusted in the promise. Moses, in Deuteronomy 18.15, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And there's many aspects of Jesus' life which mirrors Moses' life. In his birth, and in leading the people, this promise was believed by the patriarchs and prophets, but it was also believed by the people of God. Even at Jesus' birth, as he's presented in the temple, we see this man, Simeon, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25, we see this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he sees him. He was was waiting. He was hoping. He was believing. As many of the people all throughout the ages were hoping, believing, trusting in this promise of a Savior, of a Redeemer, that things would not continue the way they are. But something would happen. John Calvin wrote concerning Christ and his birth. He says this. He says, all God's promises depend upon Christ alone. This is a notable assertion in one of the main articles of our faith. It depends in turn upon another principle. That it is only in Christ that God the Father is graciously inclined towards us. His promises are the testimonies of his fatherly good will towards us. Thus it follows that they are fulfilled only in Christ. In other words, all of God's promises are rooted in His promise of a Savior. And why? Primarily for the purpose of glorifying Himself. That all of the attributes of God are put on display in the cross of Christ in salvation. That He's able to... um, uh, show and display His justice, His holiness, His wrath, His power, but also His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness and His wisdom and His providence. But second, and from our perspective, God's promises are rooted in His promise of a Savior because of our need for a Savior. We need a Savior, which is our second theme which we see all throughout our Christmas hymns and carols. We've seen the promise of a Savior. And second, we see the need of, for a Savior. All of our Christmas hymns, they either explicitly state this or they allude to it, that we need a Savior. We see this need manifested all throughout the Bible. It's manifested from the beginning. It's, it's manifested in our dying, in death. In Genesis chapter 5, you can turn there. In Genesis chapter 5, it's, it's known as, uh, some people have called it, the, the graveyard chapter. <laughs> and uh, there's two things that we notice here in Genesis chapter 5. Um, two phrases which continue to be brought up in Genesis chapter 5. He goes through this genealogy, starting from, Abraham, uh, from Adam. It says, Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And he goes on, and he lists these people, the offspring that would come after him. And, and you see, um, thus all the days of blank were so many years, and then, and he died. Thus all the days of so-and-so were blank years, and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Over and over again, showing that the effects of the curse. And he died. This is something, it's something that will happen to all of us. It's a reminder that everyone dies. 
And logically and intellectually and practically, we know that. We know that we will die, but we don't live as if we will die. We don't prioritize our lives in such a way knowing that our death can come at any time. You see this in funerals, even amongst believers. That it's somewhat of a shock, even for those with a terminal illness, that they, they, they knew two years out that this person is going to die, and it still comes as a shock. Everyone dies, great, small, loved, hated, whatever. The wages of sin is death. In the day you eat of it, you shall die. All die. Our need for a Savior is manifested first and foremost in death. But then it's also manifested in evil deeds. You go one chapter over in Genesis, in chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so he flooded the earth. He flooded the earth. And and there's... Many, um, there's people who have done uh, kind of statistics, um, given the birth rate, uh, looking at the original genealogies and the birth rate and how long people lived, and just from a conservative estimate, that the amount of people on the earth during the time of the flood was billions. Many more billions than what the population is now. And of all ages and types, and God destroyed them. He flooded all of them, except eight, because they are wicked. And we haven't changed much. Psalm 14 says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. None of us. We can look at other people and we can look at one another and we can um, say, well, that's a good person. You know, that's a good family. Those are good people. But we're using our own standards. We're judging according to what we see. We're not judging according to God's standards. We're not looking at the inside of man, at the heart of man as God does. Our need for a Savior is manifested in our death, manifested in our evil. It's manifested in our evil thoughts and desires and intentions. But it's also manifested in failure. In failure. We're not just sinful, we're foolish. And not just us, but all all of humanity. Every government and empire that has ever been, every family, every church, every organization, every company, there's failure. There's failure, and we see this around every political season, and, and it's getting less and less because of the character of the politicians, but there's always a hope that we'll get a good one, and they'll change some things. And, and sometimes we get someone that's, eh, generally good, but then our hopes are quickly dashed. And the same is true for every... Um, government leader, um, even ministers. Because we all fail. None of us is perfect. And there's still this, this hope that someone will come along and fix something. Someone will come and make things right. We need a Savior. And this need is not only manifested in death and in evil deeds and in failure, but this need is ex- it's expressed in our anger and frustration all throughout the Bible from Cain to Pharaoh to every evil king in the Bible to every human being who has ever been discontent, disappointed, or disgruntled. There's anger and frustration with our circumstances, with ourselves, with government, with churches, with family. It manifests our need for a Savior. This need is expressed every day. It's, it's expressed 
not only in our attitudes, but in revelation, in the Bible, in general revelations of, of, of creation. Psalm 130 says this, uh, Psalm of David, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is no one. If He marks out all our sins, which He does, no one can stand. Not one of us. So our need for a Savior, it's expressed in many ways. Our failures, revelation, our frustration. But it's also expressed in the fact that there's a glimmer of hope within all of us. And even unbelievers. That they would hope that someone would come along and fix this. Romans chapter 7. At the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul's going through the gospel, and there's almost this kind of rhetorical exchange between an Old Testament saint and the law, or um, some think it's, it's, it's Paul thinking about himself, and, and certainly um, there's truth in that. But he's showing the inability of, of man to um, not only save himself, but the, the frustration of sin the effects of sin. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, it says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If we're honest with ourselves, we all must come to that point. And for many of us, as we grow in the Christian life and we strive towards holiness, this is a daily reminder that we're not able to live up to the law of God. That there is law, a law in our members waging war against us. That we live in this sin-cursed world, in a sin-cursed body, and we continue to think and to do the things which we know are wrong and we don't want to do. And quite honestly, that, that battle within the believer, in a way, is an indicator that we have been saved, that there is that battle going on, that we sincerely want to do good. But it points towards our need for a Savior. And not just to be initially saved, but as, as um, many theologians have said, that that a believer is saved, they are being saved, and they will be saved completely. They are saved uh, positionally and legally before the courtroom of God and, and being justified. They are being saved, they are being sanctified and, and saved from the effects of sin, and they will be saved completely from the presence of sin if they are in Christ. This is how great of a Savior we have, how great of a salvation we have, because our need is so great. We, we need a Savior. Tim Challey said this, to deny that Jesus Christ is the only Savior is to deny the utter seriousness of the human condition and the gravity of the offense against God. That only God could deliver us. That there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. We don't need a guru or a way to clean ourselves up because those things couldn't help us. God himself has to come down and make us new, recreate us, take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. So throughout the Bible, throughout our Christmas hymns, we are reminded of the promise of a Savior. Second, we are reminded of the need of a Savior. 
But also we are thirdly reminded of the foreshadowing of a Savior. That all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout human history, there was times and revelation, events, which pointed towards a Savior. Which pointed towards a time in which a Redeemer would come. This started back in the, in the garden. We see the Savior typified. That, that there are, meaning there are types in Old Testament figures that pointed to there was aspects in Old Testament characters which, which Jesus would fulfill. And foremost in Adam. As Romans chapter 5 says, For if because of one's, one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And just as Adam was created in a sense, to glorify God upon this earth, to be the perfect man, made in the image of man, to be God's vice regent upon this earth, to have dominion over the earth. Though he failed, and he cast the whole human race into sin, the Savior must be made like him. He must, because man sinned, the Savior must become a man. He must pay the sin debt for man. But he must do what he could not do. He must rule and reign. He must um, worship God. He must honor God and all His commandments. He must be everything that Adam was not. And this is Christ. He's also typified in, in Isaac, in his sacrifice or almost sacrifice on Mount Moriah, as Abraham is told to take your son, your one and only son, the child of promise, and go to the mountain which I will show you and sacrifice him. Foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ, that, that God himself would crush his one and only son to redeem us. He's also typified in, in Moses, in Moses' birth, his office as a prophet and a redeemer, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, a prophet will rise up out of you who is like me. You shall listen to him. And probably most eminently, he's, he's typified in David as a king and a prophet. Psalm 22 points towards Jesus' crucifixion. We see this foreshadowing of a Savior in his, all the types in the Old Testament. And there, there are more with which are, um, some believe are types, some believe are not. But nonetheless, we see these figures that point towards Jesus, point towards a Redeemer, point towards Christ. But we also see the Savior prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. He's prophesied first and foremost by, by God Himself as God speaks in uh, to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 and throughout, through all the prophets. We see him prophesied by Job in Job 19. We see him prophesied by Jacob in, Jacob in uh, Genesis 49.10, by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, by David in Psalm 22 and 24 and Psalm 110, which Jesus himself used to confront the Pharisees concerning himself. Pointing to them, hey, David spoke of me. The prophets spoke of me. The Psalms, the law, it all spoke of me. Isaiah, probably most notably, probably the, the, the prophet that, that um, speaks most about Christ, either in direct reference or allusions. Isaiah 7.14, the, the virgin shall give birth to a child. You shall call, he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9.6, Isaiah 53. Many passages from Isaiah 40 on to 66. He's prophesied by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31 and 33. By Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel lays out his coming in, in such precision that it, it, it's almost dumbfounding how... Um, the Jews could miss him. 
He had to come at that time in history. Because of all the things which Daniel wrote about him. By Micah and Micah 5, 1 to 5. And by Zechariah and Zechariah 9. There, there's several other prophecies which you either directly show who he is and what he would do or allusions to him. In their uh, systematic theology, MacArthur and Mayhew write this. The Jews themselves read the Hebrew Bible in such a way that many came to understand its prophecies as direct predictions of the coming Messiah. After Philip had been called to service as a disciple of Jesus in John 1.43, he sought Nathanael in order to tell him that Jesus of Nazareth was truly the one about whom Moses and the prophets had written. All the Jews, they had anticipated a Savior. They had anticipated a Messiah. Though they were looking more towards the prophecies concerning His second coming, they were nonetheless looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a champion, for a king, for someone to redeem them. Though they were thinking more in terms of the earthly national sense and crushing Israel's enemies and establishing the kingdom, which he will do. Nonetheless, they were looking for a Savior. They were looking for a Messiah because he was foreshadowed all throughout the whole Old Testament. And so in considering these themes of Christ's birth, we see the promise of a Savior, the need of a Savior, the foreshadowing of a Savior. Fourth, the longing for a Savior. That the Jews, as they looked for a Savior, as they looked for a Redeemer, as they looked for a King, there was a longing in their hearts. There was a longing for a champion. A longing for someone to fix this mess that we're in. To fulfill the promises which God gave to the patriarchs, which gave to, uh, which He gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and throughout all the prophets, we see this longing of a nation, of the nation of Israel and Egypt in the wilderness. As, as even they grumble against Moses, they're still longing for a deliverer. You, you think of, you know, during the 400 years in, in captivity, in Egypt, in, in slavery, there was still a sense of a promise of, of that oral um, promise being passed on from generation to generation. Otherwise, Moses wouldn't have done what he did. There was people who were holding on to the promise of the prophets. They were looking for a Savior, for a Redeemer. There was a longing. There was an emptiness. In the time of the judges and Samuel, as, as, as Israel descends into uh, more and more um, wickedness, depravity and idolatry, and, and though they're in the promised land, things aren't what they're supposed to be. And they look for a deliverer as, as they descend into idolatry and God sends discipline and judgment by way of the pagan nations. He also raises up a hero, a judge. And yes, these judges are um, they're flawed and they get worse and worse. But nonetheless, Israel is looking for a champion, for a redeemer, for a conqueror, for a king, for someone to come along and fix this, to save them. All throughout the time of the kings, prior to the exile, you know, even as they asked Samuel for a king, someone to lead them. And Samuel warns them, he says, no, God is your king. And God even tells Samuel, go ahead. Do this, because they're, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. But there would be a king. A king would come. And he, even in David, who typifies Jesus, he still see his flaws, but nonetheless, they longed for a king. And, and even in the presence of that king, even in the presence of the Savior, they still longed for their Messiah. Even though He was right there in front of them. 
even though he fulfilled the prophecies, there's still this longing in their hearts for a Savior. Even today, in many Jews, there's still a longing for a Messiah, though they are blinded to the facts. They're blinded to the prophecies. There's still that longing. And for all people, there's, there's a longing of the human heart for a Redeemer, for a Savior, for a King, for someone to fix this, for meaning and purpose, for fulfillment, for deliverance and redemption. We would all love to see someone rule and reign and fix this mess, this broken world that we're in. Unbelievers alike. They would long for someone to come along that is good and right and upright, and just, holy. The human heart longs for transcendence, for God, for meaning, for purpose. That purpose is only found in a Savior, in God, in His promises. In his book, The God of Promise and the Life of Faith, uh, author Scott Halfman, he writes this, Hope in God's promises is not a wishful longing, but a faith-filled confidence for the future. It is simply impossible to trust one of God's promises and not anticipate its coming true. To know God is to trust Him. And to trust God is to trust His promises. And to trust God's promises is to be sure of their fulfillment. This assurance concerning the future, anchored in God's promises is what the Bible calls hope. Hope. And that brings us to our fifth theme. We've seen the promise of a Savior, the need of a Savior, the foreshadowing of a Savior, the longing for a Savior, and finally, the hope of a Savior. And there's this saying that you've probably heard, and I've heard it um, several times, and it's, it's quaint. It's catchy. Um, I believe there's truth in it. Uh, you can roughly go about 40 days without food and about three days without water, but you can only go, go a day without hope. And just we, we all live on hope, though our, our hopes are in either a weekend or paying off the mortgage or a job or finishing that degree, or relationship, or all sorts of many um, earthly things, they are hope nonetheless. We, we live on the basis of hope that things will get better. But a biblical hope, a true hope, is found in God alone. It has an object. It's not just um, wishful thinking. We need hope. We need a hope of a Savior. We need a hope of someone who, who could do and be what we cannot. Who could live uprightly. Who could um, fulfill God's law. Who could do everything we could not as men and women, as human beings, as those who are made in the image of God. One who would stand in our place to pay for what we could not. To pay our sin debt for us. To redeem us. J.I. Packer writes this, he says, The Christian message is that there is hope for ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. And there is a sense that um, if we're just thinking in terms of of our Savior, of Jesus Christ paying the penalty of our sins for us, that, that He could have just came down during Passion Week, went to the cross and died. But it's not just that we need our sins paid for, but we lack righteousness. So Jesus came and He lived a life, a righteous, holy life for us. So that righteousness would be placed, would be credited to our account, would be imputed to us. But also so that, as the, as the writer to the Hebrews says, he could sympathize with our own weaknesses. He could be a, a faithful and sympathetic high priest 
And this is this is the object of all our hope is in a perfect savior. Individually and spiritually, we need the hope of a savior, of a redeemer to complete what we could not. But also corporately and earthly for the church. We need a hope as an organization, as a body, as a family, as a people. We need the hope of a Savior. And this, this hope, it was always for the world. It was always for the nations. It wasn't limited to Israel. Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah writes this, verse 5 to 6, he says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, speaking of Jesus, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Later on, he says, The root of Jesse will come. In him will the Gentiles hope. All from the beginning. There was a hope of a Redeemer, and that hope wasn't just for Israel. It wasn't just for the people of God. It was for all peoples. That through this nation, that a Redeemer would come, a Savior would come to redeem sinful mankind. But there is also this hope for Israel that still exists today. Though many of them are unaware and they're blinded to it and there's a veil over their eyes. The, 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 the church has not replaced Israel in God's program. That God still has a plan for Israel. In, in Romans chapter 11 it says this, Paul speaking of his brothers, of his kinsmen. Romans 11.25, he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All Israel, when he says all Israel will be saved, he's saying all the elect of Israel, all the true Israel, they will come to him. He will redeem Israel. Just as he will redeem all of the church, all of the true church. There is this corporate hope of a Savior for the church, for Israel, and, and for all of creation. Creation itself needs a Savior. The church needs a Savior. People need a Savior. Israel needs a Savior. Creation needs a Savior, a Redeemer. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Waiting for a Redeemer, for full redemption. Jesus Christ is a perfect Savior. And our salvation isn't primarily about us. It's about God. It's about what He's doing in the world. About what He's doing through His people, through the church, through Israel. For creation itself, He will redeem all of creation. And starts with the child in the manger. This is the hope of Christmas. And we have the promise of a Savior. Because we need a Savior. And the Savior has been foreshadowed. He's been told of. He's been prophesied. And He fulfills the longing of the human heart. Because there's true hope in Him. You know, there's, as I talked about this, him, come thou long expected Jesus. And it, it shows this anticipation of Christ coming and redeeming. There's another Christmas song which we sing a lot. 
And we, we know it as a Christmas song, but it's really not a Christmas song. It, 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 it's, it, it points to something even much greater. It points to the return of our Savior. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. There's a sense that we can sing joy to the world during Christmas, but it's not about the incarnation. It points forward to the time in which he will return. Our Savior will return and he will redeem this whole sin-cursed world. He will rule and reign in righteousness and then truly there will be joy to the world. And this is why we continue to sing, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Even though he has come, we echo the words of the Apostle John at the end of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And for those who have not come to Jesus, the call is to come. We, we call him to come and to return. But he calls us to come. And if you have not come to him, the call is to seek him while he may be found, to come to him while he is near, to call upon him. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come while you can. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Don't miss out on Christmas, on the greatest gift of all, which is found in this Savior who took on human flesh and was born in a manger so that he could die on a cross for us to redeem us from our sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder of this gift of the babe in the manger, of the child that would become king to rule and reign, to redeem to save a people for himself. Lord, help us not to miss out on Christmas, not to become distracted by all the cultural trappings. Though many of them aren't inherently wrong, they distract us. Help us to focus on the reason for the season, on Jesus Christ, and to take every opportunity to proclaim him. We pray, Lord, that you would use us over the next week or so as we interact with unsaved family members and friends and maybe go to Christmas parties in our workplace, that you would use us to proclaim your gospel and that sinners may be saved and may come to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.